What kind of changes does one see in pediatrics after more than 30 years in the field? What is the medical home concept and why is it important? Why is it also important to build systems within a working practice? And finally, what are important characteristics of a good provider? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Dr. Chuck Norlin, a pediatrician and medical educator here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. I've got a great guest today, Dr. Chuck Norlin. Good morning, Dr. Norlin. Good morning, Dr. Chan. Well, I'm really grateful that you've come on uh, the podcast. Uh, I've heard so much about you. So um, let's kind of start with the overall broad view and then just start marching down. Um, when I interact with a lot of students, uh, one of the most popular questions I always get is, how did you choose to become like a pediatrician or a psychiatrist or um, – you know, a surgeon and things like that. So just kind of a broad question to start, Dr. Norland. How did you find yourself in pediatrics? What drew you, what drew you to that field? Well, that takes me a long way back. Um, I think the things that drew me to it were mostly kind of the, the opportunities to make changes that might be lifelong, um, hopefully to prepare people uh, to lead a healthy and productive life um, and to have a chance to influence them before a lot of major life decisions and stuff had happened to them. Um, I think the uh, opportunity to work with parents who are very dedicated and committed to improving their children's health and long-term well-being was another great uh, uh, challenge as well as uh, opportunity. Um, and I think the, uh, their, their energy is just so, uh, so rewarding to me to, to interact with them. Mm -hmm. And so how have you seen the field change? Oh, dramatically. Um, pediatrics, the practice of general pediatrics, which is what I do, um, has changed substantially since I finished medical school. And a lot of that is uh, due to one, you know, the... Uh, this very successful implementation of a number of vaccines mm -hmm. that have essentially removed a lot of a lot of what used to be a major concern every day when you saw a child with a high fever you used to worry all the time about meningitis and it's not a zero worry anymore, but a, a much, much smaller worry. Um, and then also the significant change in the complexity of kids. Um, you know, children were surviving prematurity and we as well as a lot of congenital and inborn errors um, with you know, much greater um, success these days so that they're uh, surviving into adult, young adulthood and on into adulthood. And uh, so the complexity of the kids has changed significantly in that many of those kids just weren't surviving when I started practice in 1980. Um, so that's and that that has actually been one of the things that drew me to the kind of practice. I ended up in, and, and the focus of my work on uh, what's called the medical home concept um, is, is my interest in those kinds of kids with complex conditions and chronic conditions. So to get more specific, I mean, what is a medical home? I mean, I hear that term, but, you know, some people might not realize what that is. What does that entail? Right. It's an unfortunate term, in my opinion, because okay. it doesn't conjure up what it's supposed to mean. I mean, most people, when they hear about it, think of a nursing home or some uh, old folks home. But medical home is, is essentially the concept of a, an approach to care that really is holistic in terms of its approach to the child and their family. Um, it doesn't just focus on the acute issues of today or the well-child issues that we're all 
accustomed to, but it focuses on all of the aspects of a child's life, and thereby it applies mostly to those kids with chronic and or complex conditions. Um, and it tries to take into account their needs uh, for education, their developmental needs, uh, their family's needs, um, their long-term you know, goals and engaging the family and the child to the degree the child is able to developmentally uh, to participate and, and be major decision makers in that care. So really developing a partnership uh, between the family, the child, and the clinician. And it really means a clinician's team, not yeah. just the physician, um, because the, that can't be done all by a clinician. Uh, that has to be done by the team in terms of coordinating the care, trying to make sure the care is safe non-duplicative, um, worthwhile, um, and valuable um, so that you're not doing things that are unnecessary, you're not reduplicating, you know, redoing things that have already been done. Um, and you're also trying to make sure the child is, takes advantage of all the resources that are available that could be of value to the child. Um, and that coordination of care is one of the biggest challenges in that because even with electronic medical records, you know, communications are suboptimal. Um, so there's lots of room for improving the quality of care and the and the uh, outcomes for kids. What kind of conditions, you know, are, are you know, we're, we're here in Utah, obviously. What kind of conditions are the most popular or the most common, I guess would be a better way to say it, that need this medical home model? Which ones are kind of um, the more common ones, I would say? Well, in kids, there uh, there aren't many common chronic conditions. Probably okay. the two that stand out the most would be asthma and ADHD. Okay. So those, depending on which studies you read and which which community, might be ten percent of the population each. Um, so, and but the, both of those are conditions that, in at least some of those kids, can you know, can really benefit from coordination of care, both across specialties, but also across settings. You know, school and home, athletics and home. Um, those are areas. Where where making sure that everybody is on the same page in terms of how you're approaching the care, how you're approaching assessing the outcomes of the care, I think is really important. But then after that, you get into myriad chronic and complex conditions that uh, many of them are congenital. You know, so, for example, Down syndrome, uh, the most common chromosomal abnormality, um, requires a fair amount of different approaches to care, both developmentally and physically. Um, but it's uncommon. You know, the, even though it's the most common chromosomal abnormality, the average pediatrician would have about three patients with mm -hmm. Down syndrome um, if they were equally distributed uh, across pediatricians. Um, but that makes it very difficult for a single primary care pediatrician to stay up to date on all of those conditions because they might have you know, five, one patient with one of these conditions, but one patient each for five or 10 or 15 or 20 conditions, mm -hmm. um, and then two or three with other conditions. So cystic fibrosis, um, diabetes, you know, some of the more well-known conditions, but then there's also a lot of congenital abnormalities and inborn errors um, like Prader-Willi syndrome, mm -hmm. things like that that are so rare that, you know, I've only had one in my career. Um, so staying up to date on those is very challenging. So so you can't expect to be the the master of all of them. You have to have systems in place where you whereby you can find out what you need to know in a timely fashion. And then relationships with subspecialists and facilities and uh, other resources so that you can easily you know, help patients access those services. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I love this, Dr. Norlin, because like – you know, this sounds so needed, so essential. And just to kind of give people a better 
look at this? I mean, what does a, a standard quote-unquote appointment look like in the clinic? Because I think when, when most people think about going in to see their pediatrician, they think about you know going in like once a year, once every couple of years. But it sounds like uh, when someone goes into your clinic, it's, it's a little bit more, you know, you talk about coordination. What does that look like? I mean, do they have multiple appointments within that time period with different people? Or, I mean, what, what does that coordination look like? That's a great question. Um, and it looks different for every family and every, every set of you know, clinicians involved. Uh, yeah, the typical pediatric practice, you know, you're, you know, the pediatricians will be expected to see you know, three or four or five patients an hour, which does not provide enough time to do a good job even of assessing those, you know, the myriad problems that such a child might have, um, much less really manage them well. So most, most pediatricians who really try to provide a medical home will do specialized scheduling where the, those patients are identified, ideally through a registry that's linked with their EMRs, but those are still in their birth or their you know, infancy in terms of functionality. So oftentimes they'll use a separate system like an Excel spreadsheet to keep that registry, but then have it have their front desk when they're making those appointments schedule a longer visit, sometimes two or three times as long as the standard visit when those children are coming in, um, and then have a team in the practice that ideally would involve somebody who has the formal job of a care coordinator, but in some practices that's an MA whose add-on task is doing that. Um, who then you know, is, is alerted to look at that patient, identify the information that's been you know, kind of gathered or is available since the last visit so that all of that information is ready to be looked at at the time the patient comes in. Um, and then after the clinicians had a chance to see the patient, make judgments, then to again communicate with the care coordinator about further referrals, further testing that needs to be done, further communications with schools or, or other individuals, other services, um, to make sure that those are coordinated. And that gathering of information is one of the critical things so that you know what has been done. You have the ability to see everything that's been done so you're going to avoid doing it again unless it's necessary. Um, but, th- but then also m- knowing who all the team m- team members are. In the, and I consider the team members anybody who has to do with, has anything to do with that child and their, their care. So again, that would be you know, babysitters or nannies. It would be teachers, coaches, um, all of the subspecialties physical therapists, occupational therapists, anybody who's involved uh, with that patient going forward. I love that, Dr. Rowan. I love how he, like, you talked about like the school because you know, I'm a child psychiatrist and um, you know, I, you know, school. Like, kids are in school like six, seven, eight hours a day. That's a huge part of their life. And, you know, I think in the past there has not been that coordination because, like, these kids go off to school and and it's kind of been a black box. No one really knows what's going on. But, like, I, I like how, you know, coordinating people's conditions, be it behavioral, physical, however you want to look at it, to bring in the school is incredibly powerful. Because I remember I've been invited to meetings and just kind of talk about, you know, what I see going on and then get the school's perspective. It's incredibly important. And, you know, I was just going to ask, like, you know, what are the barriers to this medical home model? Why hasn't this been adopted more widely? What What, what is going on with that? Well, the barriers are huge. And one of them, as you were just talking about the schools, is uh, something called FERPA. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all familiar with HIPAA. Yes. Um, but FERPA is the school's of equivalent of that. And it's much more rigorous in many ways and much less understood even by people in the schools oftentimes. So that can serve as a huge barrier to communicating with schools. Uh, but I think overall the, the barrier Barriers are that, you know, particularly in pediatrics, but also in adult medicine, that this takes time. 
And the the reimbursement system for healthcare is set up to really reward procedures and to undervalue, in my humble opinion, um, you know, the cognitive work that's involved in taking care of people with chronic conditions. Um, I think the adult care world has recognized that uh, a lot more in the last 10 years um, as we've seen all sorts of programs focused on those complex, very expensive adults uh, with, uh, you know, uh, hot spotting programs and chronic and complex condition management programs. Um, and it's starting to catch on in pediatrics. A number of academic institutions particularly now have complex care clinics focused on the very complex. Um, and those are oftentimes kids who are technology dependent. Um, and end up in the hospital a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and those programs generally are thought to care for the top 1% in terms of expense and complexity for kids. But my interests are really those kids from that top 1% down to the 60 to 70 percentile where, you know, the kids below that percent really don't have many problems. You see them for routine care. So those kids with chronic conditions but not super complex that can, in my, in my opinion, should be managed by primary care clinicians. Those are the kids that, that I think you know, most benefit from this medical home model. Um, but trying to fit that into a busy you know, general pediatrician schedule is, is difficult. There are no compensation systems that really accommodate for that, though with you know, health care payment reform, you know, new experiments are being tried in terms of paying physicians for care coordination, either on a fee-for-service basis or on a per-member-per-month basis. Um, and of late, there's been a lot of talk and a little bit of movement towards what's called population management, where clinicians are really expected to provide care and be responsible for outcomes for all of the patients to whom they are assigned or so-called attribute, attributed to. Um, and um, But the payment for that is yet to, to materialize. So, so how to make that work, um, it sounds great, and uh, if if it's fully implemented would probably actually make a big difference in terms of reducing costs. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you do that transition from a fee for service world to a prospective payment world? There in lies the rub. Yeah. There's That's the a rub. huge, yeah. huge yeah. rub. All right. Well, Dr. Allen, let's switch gears just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen so many changes um, in our system um, and you've seen a lot of pediatricians in your life. What, what kind of characteristics, what kind of traits do you look for? Um, in a doctor that can really perpetuate that quality care, um, you know, across the continuum. I mean, what do you what do you look for nowadays in a good pediatrician? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, probably one I ought to bounce back to you as an, <laughs> as an admissions officer. <laughs> well, you're in my home court, so yeah, you can try. <laughs> um, well, I think passion is probably the most important, um, that you really care about what you're doing and you care about the kids and you care about the families. Um, because, you know, it, it's going to take a lot of passion to, to, you know, just go to work every day and, and keep on doing what you're doing despite, you know, the obstacles of your EMR and payment, you know, payment. Um, so I, I think passion for what you're doing is most important. Um, I think having a perspective where you really are interested in the developmental trajectory of kids. Um, so for adults, yeah, they continue to develop, but it's not near as dramatic. Um, so, so being interested and 
kind of, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Rewarded, if you will, you know, by watching kids grow up, uh, by being able to adapt how you approach their care by their developmental age, and also by you know, being excited about helping parents do a better job with their kids um, and being able to understand all of the other impacts on kids' development and health that may not be so obvious. You know, the, the, you know, an area of recent interest of mine has been toxic stress. So, mm-hmm. so toxic stress is the idea that um, there's good stress and there's bad stress. You know, good stress is the kind of stress that, you know, kind of you're able to meet the challenge or not, but you're able to bounce back and, and do well. Toxic stress is the kind of stressors um, that really impact you in a negative way, um, and those are all too common. Um, there was an outstanding study done uh, through Kaiser uh, a bunch of years ago called the ACES study, looking at adverse childhood events, um, where they looked at adults and, and who had chronic diseases and asked them about their childhood events, uh, exposure to things like mental health problems in their family, um, domestic violence, child abuse, sexual abuse, etc. And there was a remarkable association between experiencing more of those events and having uh, chronic disease of all sorts, including mental health problems. Would the, would the word resiliency be appropriate then? I mean, right. it kind of sounds like you're describing it. Right. So, so, yeah. so lack of resiliency mm-hmm. results in, you know, in the impacts of those. Um, and it was discovered that one of the most important factors in being resilient is having a, at least one solid, supportive relationship with an adult, you know, through those childhood experiences. So so we've been trying to help uh, practices learn how to identify children who are being exposed to those experiences so that interventions can take place to enhance resiliency for those kids as they grow up. Um, and I can't remember how I got onto this <laughs> topic. Well, we're talking, we're talking about, about the kinds yeah, of well, pediatricians. Looking, yeah. Right. And like, right, so, I don't know if I'm going to get that back, if that question back at me, I would you know, I would kind of you – because know, I was thinking about resiliency. I was mm-hmm. thinking about how pediatricians nowadays, uh, they need to be able to improve. They need to be able to be flexible, adaptable because the one thing that I'm just blown away by is – and this is my perception – is that I think today it's much harder for children and teenagers to be children and teenagers. There is so much more going on in our universe and you know, I'm kind of specifically referring to like social media and mm-hmm. cell phones mm-hmm. and – the complexity of relationships that devolve from that. And, you know, because I remember back, in, you know, when I was growing up, like, you know, if people, someone was having a bad day, you were having a bad day, and maybe a handful of people that sat around you in homeroom knew about it, right? But nowadays, right. like, people are posting things and people are attacking right. people. And so when I think about what, like, a pediatrician or anyone who works with children, for that matter, you need to be able to kind of like a, like understand this technology, talk, use the same language, and kind of grow from there. And so I'm just amazed by like the amount of research that's going on mm-hmm. with how children interact with each other, how teenagers interact with each other, how parents kind of fit in. I mean, like like the question: Should I be friends with my teenager on Facebook? That, that that's like a huge question that parents struggle with. So I think a good pediatrician needs to be adept in like answering that type of question. And right. so, like, so I, I think about resiliency, adaptability, the quality, the capacity to improve and grow upon one's knowledge and practice as being essential. I mean, what do you think about that, Dr. Norland? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and I'll tell you, my kids answer to your question about sure. Facebook and it was clearly no. <laughs> 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 yeah, and, and, and had we joined Facebook, they probably would have left immediately. Um, <laughs> Yes. But um, but no, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, 
life for kids has changed dramatically. Um, and, and I don't think we have any clue what the right answers to some of those questions that parents ask are in terms of, well, how much should I let my kid be on the screen? Yeah. You know, the AEP, the American Academy of Pediatrics recently announced that it's revisiting its policies yeah. around that because, you know, it used to say, well, no more than two hours of screen time per day, you know, starting at age three, I think it was, um, and zero screen time before that. But yeah, that's not what happens in the real world, yeah, despite yes. what the AAP yeah. says. And do we see any adverse effects from that? Well, those are hard to measure, yeah. hard to assess whether they're good or bad. Um, so I think you know, they are what they are, though. We have technology. We have social media. It's not going away. Mm-hmm. So figuring out how to help kids and families work with it rather than you know, try to have fight against it is probably a wiser move in the long run. Mm-hmm. But to bring back your, you know, your most recent question to one you asked a while ago, um, yes, I think one of the most important characteristics for pediatricians, really for any any physician, is going to be the the knowledge that you cannot per- possibly do it right every time, mm-hmm. and the commitment to improving how you do it perpetually, um, and that's where you know one of my other you know, primary interests, uh, quality improvement, has has come in. Is you know there, there are just so many things that make it very hard to be consistently right mm-hmm. or consistently you know consistent about the care that you provide, um, and that uh, you really need to think beyond just what you do every day. So you need to build systems um, into whatever practice setting you're working in to make it, one, easy to do the right thing every time, and two, to measure what you're doing so that you know when you're not doing what you want to do mm-hmm. and you're not getting the kind of outcomes that you want. Um, and that's sort of antithetical to the way I was raised as a as a physician. Well, you know, you're right. You know, you know more than everybody else. Well, well, I may know more than everybody else on some things, <laughs> but not on on everything by any means. Um, and the way I do things really is affected by how you know what I did last at the last visit or you know the, my experience two weeks ago with the situation that may not really apply here. And my ability to discriminate and know um, and process all that is is just um, impossible. Um, you know, one of the you know, oft-quoted studies looked at a bunch of previous studies and figured out that it took an average of 17 years for a new research finding that's been widely accepted and promulgated by you know, professional societies to get implemented in 50% of practices. 17 years. 17 years. So that's like saying, like, oh, we know that washing hands exactly. cuts down on infections, <laughs> but it took 17 years for... You said fifty for half the clinics right. to implement it. Right. So, yeah. Wow. So, so yes, yeah, so that's staggering. You know, when we think about all that we're learning from research, you know, constantly new learning, new findings. Granted, some of those are unlearned mm-hmm. a little while in the next study, but still, you know, even once th- once things are widely accepted, it takes too long to get them implemented. Mm-hmm. So, figuring out. At the practice level, at the practice systems level, so groups of practices, figuring out at a community level, at a state level, a national level, how do we implement things safely but quickly once we know how, how it ought to be done? And how do we build systems to enable us humans to do it better you know, all the time? So that's been the other area of, of work that I've been involved in for the last you know, 12 to 13 years is running a, a pediatric uh, quality improvement organization that works with community practices. Um, 
And we've done about 40 projects over those years, depending on how you count them, um, focusing from, on everything from ADHD to asthma to autism to developmental screening and, uh, and several projects focused on this medical home concept, particularly mm-hmm. with the care coordination and trying to help practices measure what they do so they know what they're doing. And that's oftentimes a surprise for them because <laughs> yeah, you know, immunizations are a great example. Um, one of the founders of this organization is a pediatrician named Gordon Glade um, in American Fork. And he talks about you know his first participation in a national study focused on quality improvement on immunizations. And everybody sent in their, you know, their immunization records. And then those were analyzed. And then at this national meeting, they were presented up on the screen. And, and he talks about seeing this slide that changed his life when he knows that his rates, and he was sure he was in the 90th percentile. Yeah, about 60th percentile (laughs) compared to the national numbers. And it's just a measure of, you know, you you don't notice that one patient where you, for some reason, the parent didn't want it. It's just too easy to not notice the things that you don't do. So, um, So helping people measure on a recurring basis how well they're doing. And then when they recognize that they're not doing as well as they want to, well, how do you make those changes? How do you implement changes that are sustainable? Um, a common uh, approach to that is called the PDSA cycle, the Plan, Do, Study, Act cycle. Um, so that's where you make a plan to cha- make a change. You, you, you make a small change you know, towards this goal that you've got in mind. Um, and then you do it. And then you study what you did to see, well, did that work as well as we thought it? What were the problems that we found as we tried to do that? And then you you assess it and then you you kind of look at that again and then you make a new plan and then you do it again so that you're perpetually improving this. But you've got to have it built so that you don't backslide. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't, you know, kind of, well, you changed it this way, but now this this other thing, you know, went down mm-hmm. because we spent so much time on this other one. So so it, it really takes a lot of work and thought to make that work. But then once you've made the improvements, if you've built systems to support those, now you can keep moving forward as opposed to having to just always tread water. I love this, Dr. Norland. So the thing that comes to my mind, and, you know, I'm very curious to get your thoughts on this. When you talk about systems and quality improvement, I think about a book I recently read by Dr. Atul Gawande, mm-hmm. The Ch- Checklist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. I love it. And he talks about how you know airline pilots, when they're about to take off from the airplane, they have a checklist. You have to do these things. And um, they go down, and that's how airlines have nearly perfect safety records because there's a standard checklist. And he talks about his work in the OR, and I, I'm not sure on the details specifics. I'm sure someone out there will – well, uh, you know, knows more about this than I do, but that how he went to th- these different operating rooms. And as in the past, there wasn't really a checklist. It was just kind of every hospital had a kind of different protocol and they weren't really writing this down. And mm-hmm. some things would slip through the cracks. And just kind of like how you mentioned with vac- vaccination records, like surgeons continually thought they were doing much better than they actually are. Right. And then he was a big proponent of implementing checklists within the system to make everyone slow down and make sure this was being done, that was being done. And what he was tracking, I think, pretty sure his quality improvement rate was uh, he was looking at infections, mm-hmm. you know, operating room infections and right. afterwards, and those dropped record lows. So, you know, like, do you think the answer is checklist or like, uh, or what are the barriers to like getting these systems to actually adapt to things? I mean, I guess it's the million dollar question. How do you have a, a system which knows that something works? How do you cut down that 17 years to a year to a few months? I mean, what, what is the obstacle to that? Right. So, 
Well, they, there's lots of obstacles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and checklists, I think, are one answer. Um, so if you have a, uh, if I have a process that has a bunch of steps, particularly if those steps are required of multiple people, mm-hmm. then being able to have the teamwork that makes that work perfectly every time, well, you might be able to have a really high-functioning team, but then what happens when one of those folks is sick and somebody else has to step in? So being able to have a checklist so that you have to go through that process and check off each step when each step is important can make a huge difference, even when you have a consistent team. Because, we're, again, we're all human. We all can make mistakes. Yeah. So I think checklists are part of an answer. Um, but also it's reminders. You know, I mean, if I have a reminder when I'm seeing a child with asthma that, well, yeah, they're, they're – yeah, you know, asthma control test needs to be done whenever they come in, even if they're coming in for you know an injured foot. Well, now I know a little bit more about their asthma. And I can make another have another chance to help them you know, manage the control. Um, so reminders, you know, kind of having the physical space built in a way that makes it easy to to get your work done. Um, being able to have some system of getting new information into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the great things about email now, Boons and, and Bus perhaps, um, is all the email alerts. So I'm on a couple of services that give me alerts about new articles of relevance to what I'm interested mm-hmm. in. So, so, so building in systems into EMRs that provide you know kind of uh, cl- clinical decision support. Um, that's huge. Um, something that is you know, all, again only in its infancy in terms of its uh, taking advantage of the potential. But EMRs have the ability. Even if you're just talking about your own EMR, to recognize that, okay, well, here's a child whose problem list includes this condition. They're in at an age where they need to have this test done. Mm -hmm. It could remind you of that. Or their blood pressure is a little on the high side. You know, in kids, that's a little complicated. You've got to have a a complex algorithm that takes into account their their height percentile and their age (laughs) to determine if that's normal or abnormal. But having an alert that tells you, okay, you've got to recheck this. Um, So taking advantage of those is uh, an immense opportunity. But what I really look forward to is the ability to actually open up EMRs in ways that it could learn about what our care is. You know, right now, research is really limited to IRB-approved, mm-hmm. you know, pure, you know, let's isolate this one intervention and try to test it. But that's not real. the real world. The real world is where patients do all sorts of things. The real world is messy. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That, you know, that they're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so having being able to tap into all of the information that's being collected on a daily basis through all the EMRs in the world to really study outcomes and interventions in the real world would make a huge you know, difference. So, so I think that's, you know, I don't know how long, 50 years maybe, you know, we'll be there and being able to manage that kind of huge data, not just big data, but huge data, um, to be able to analyze that. Um, but that won't be in my career. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a very exciting future, Dr. Norrell. I mean, it's, I, I just, you know, it sounds like, you know, the, what I've gathered is, is you're very passionate about, you know, improving the field and helping children and, I don't know. I just think it's very beautiful. You found this career where you're doing all of that. So, um, you know, to those people that are listening to the podcast right now that are interested in helping kids or interested in 
improving systems? I mean, what advice would you give them? I mean, how would you help them get to where you're at now? I mean, what would you say to them? Mm, that's a good question. Well, I think one of the best ways to start is to read books by Atul Gawande. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's written several that I think are great. And he also uh, writes for the New Yorker magazine and uh, has, has several good articles in there. Um, I think reading a lot um, is, and not just, just medicine, so that, you know, reading what you're interested in so you learn more about what you're passionate about. Um, I think finding some mentors who really care, um, who will help nurture your interests, um, who will be critical, um, who will not you know, who, who will, you know, can I help you help push you um, to improve what you're doing and, and help you reflect on how you're doing it now? Um, I think that's uh, very important. And then I think finding colleagues who share your passion, um, who are interested in similar but not the same things, so that you can learn from each other um, and team up as needed to accomplish things. Um, one of the most important things in quality improvement is that you've got an aim. You know, so and and we talk in quality improvement about smart aim. So they're specific. You know, it's precise what you're trying to accomplish. It's measurable. You know how to measure what you're doing. It's achievable. It's not out of the range of possibility. Um, it's time. It's um, relevant. So what you're aiming for is relevant for the long-term outcome that you're trying to achieve, and it's time-specific. So that's the acronym of SMART. Um, so trying to set up SMART aims on the short term, but having a more vague long-term goal, I think, is really helpful because, again, as in the PDSA cycles, you know, you, you oftentimes don't end up on the path that you thought you were going. Mm -hmm. You know, you learn something from each step of it, so you kind of altered your path, but as you've got to keep going towards that long-term goal that is what you're really passionate about. Mm -hmm. So I think not worrying too much about what things are going to be like five years from now, but figuring out, well, what do I want to accomplish in the next month or the next six months? Mm -hmm. So that you can really make that, you know, get that accomplished. And I think that's really important for us humans because, you know, if we've got a goal that, you know, it's always ahead of us, yeah, it's hard to keep our passion going for that. Yeah. Um, if we've got a, a shorter term goal that we can actually accomplish, we can pat ourselves on the back. Wow, I really did that. And then that gives us a little bit more motivation um, towards the next uh, next phase of that. I love that, Dr. Norlin. The only thing I would add is, and, you know, and. I think for medical students, residents, um, pre-medical students, anyone who interacts with our healthcare system, yeah, I, I really value that opinion perspective because I've been inside it so much. Sometimes I don't see things, and I've you know I've talked to our students and they ask me like, oh, you know, I was in this clinic today and this and this and this was happening, and why is that? Because it didn't strike me as very inefficient. Uh, it strike me as very efficient, and I kind of have to sit back and think like, yeah, why is that going? On? I mean, mm -hmm. so uh, to me. I would always recommend if you want to improve quality, if you want to help with systems, just be very mindful of those moments because those mm -hmm. are great mm -hmm. teaching moments. Mm -hmm. Like, Why is this running this way and not that way? And you start asking that question, why, why, why? And you kind of start delving deeper into like how these systems operate. Right. And there could be room for improvement there. Right. Um, and, I mean, this touches multiple levels, you know, like you know how the clinic is set up and what values and like the time constraints and all these different indicators but i like what you said if you have a goal if you're thinking about oh like you know if we're looking at vaccination records or rates we can certainly kind of look into like incorporating that into like maybe when the ma comes out and talks about that to make that mm -hmm. part of the question going back right. to the checklist right so so yeah so uh final thoughts dr norland and this is kind of the fun stuff where are you from i grew up in miami florida miami florida <laughs> all right so someone from florida found yourself in utah 
What was, like, let's talk about Utah. Like, what was the biggest surprise, pleasant surprise, not so pleasant surprise? I mean, l- l- let's talk about that. Well, that's a that's a interesting question. So, so I ended up here through a couple of coincidences. Mm-hmm. I was in New York City in medical school, and a, a guy from the program here came out there to do his third year psych rotation. Okay, who knows why? Yeah. But anyway, I got to be friends with him, and that's, so during my senior year, I came out here and did a, a rotation um, with guys named Wintrobe and Cartwright. Yeah, big names. <laughs> big, big names. names yeah. yeah, not big people, but big <laughs> names. And uh and it was, you know, October September, October, the the canyons were golden with aspen. You know, there's just beautiful weather. This guy had a couple rafts, took me down on the stretch of the Colorado just north of Moab. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Um and then I ended up um finishing my doing residency in Philadelphia and a friend of mine from college actually, which was in Atlanta, had come out here to finish his residency. I'd taken a year off, so I was a year behind him. And, and he'd finished his residency and was working for an HMO in town here. Mm-hmm. Um, so during my last year of residency, I did an elective down on the Navajo Reservation. And this was January, February when I finished that. So my friend picked me up in southern Utah in Panguitch and took me to Bryce Canyon where we went snowshoeing in four feet of fresh snow. Wow. And then uh, and then came up here to Salt Lake um, and being a Miami boy, I'd not learned to ski. Uh, so, I, so here I was trying to learn how to ski in the Poconos, where it's you know kind of ice. Those are hills. Uh, yeah. And uh, so he took me to Alta, where I learned what real snow can be like. Um, so I, it just totally blew me away. And uh, and then when I moved here, you know, so anyway, so I, my last day here during that vacation, I, I interviewed for a job at that HMO and got it. So so when I moved here, the the thing that um, well, there's so many nice things about it. It's, it's a great pediatric community. Um, back then, it was small enough you could get to know everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very high quality of practice in the community. Very um, engaged community, particularly in terms of healthcare, um, and the access to backpacking and hiking, you know, mountains all around, desert down mm-hmm. south. Um, I, yeah, the only thing missing was ocean, but I guess growing up in Miami, I, I'd had enough of that. <laughs> um, so in terms of kind of meeting my needs for, for recreation um, and you know, just outdoor activity, um, it was it was superb. Um, and I love the four seasons. Um, and uh, so it, it, it's just worked out perfectly for so me. So it sounds like the Dr. Norland trifecta is um, Moab, Bryce Canyon, and then Alta skiing. <laughs> Yeah, and probably more actually Capital Reef. Capital Reef. Than, okay. than, than Moab. I love Moab, but it's a little bit crowded now. Yeah. Um, but Capital Reef, yeah, the, my, my first, so the one downside of this place is the winter inversions. Mm-hmm. My first year here was the worst I've ever seen. And, uh, and that got me out of town for New Year's. Um, and we went to uh, uh, Capital Reef, my first time down in the desert, other than that you know, one experience in Bryce. And, uh, and it was just gloriously beautiful, you know, clear skies, wonderful weather. So, so I've ended up, you know, kind of, you know, visiting Capitol Reef area probably more than anywhere else. And then Zion, Zion's, I have a best friend who lives in in, just outside of Zion. So Zion's beautiful. And, uh, yeah, and backpacking up in the Wind Rivers and Beartooth and uh, Sawtooth Mountains in uh, Wyoming, Idaho and Montana. It's, yes. Hard to beat. Well, well, I'm glad we got you, Dr. Gordon. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, and we'll have to have you come back. We can talk about how it's going with the quality improvement. That'd be great. All right. Enjoyed you. it. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. 
a production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.